Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. This morning, we're going to continue on in our series titled Saints and Society. So if you would, either turn in your Bibles to the letter of 1 Corinthians. So the book of 1 Corinthians, we're going to be in chapter 15 as we continue today. If you don't own a Bible, there's some black Bibles at the back of the room. Please take one of those Bibles, write your name in it. It is our gift to you. We want you to have the word of God. <clears throat> this has been said, it'll continue to be said, is God's word is our foundation of truth. And so it is our foundation of knowledge and truth that we stand upon, that we build our lives upon, but it is also the authority that we position ourselves under in all of our lives. And so we believe all of scripture from beginning to end tells one collective story, lifting up one person ultimately, which is Jesus Christ as the hero. And so we're, we're diving through a series right now titled Saints and Society. <clears throat> and the whole premise of what is going on and why we've titled it that is at the beginning of this letter, the apostle Paul calls them saints. And the word saint actually means set apart or holy one. And so we recognize that that is a title that Paul gives to them at the beginning of the letter. He doesn't say, hey, as you progress in your faith and progress in these things, you can arrive at a position of sainthood. He actually starts off addressing them and calling them saints, which is really different. Here's the reason why. Sainthood is not something that we arrive at through good works and through effort. Saints is a title God gives solely by his grace. And then it's an identity that is given freely that we then live out of. And we could say every week, what we believe impacts the way we live, that our sound doctrine leads to sound living. And so what Paul is saying, as saints, since you've been set apart and made holy by nothing you've done, this is what it looks like to step into society and engage the culture around you. This is what it looks like to have an influence on culture and society. We don't remove ourselves. We engage in as saints. We meet the culture not on their terms, but in their terms, bringing the hope of the gospel to them. So that's where we're at. That's where we're continuing this morning. Last week, just a recap, is 15 chapters in, Paul is telling them that I remind you of the gospel, which means this. The gospel is not the one thing that gets us into a saving faith or relationship with God. And then God turns it all over to us and says, now toe the line. It's all up to you. The gospel is the thing that gets us in, brings us in, holds us in, keeps us in, saves us. It's what we stand on. It's the thing that's going to secure us and bring us into eternity. The gospel is the hope <clears throat> that we're not saved by our own efforts, but we're also not continuing to save ourselves by our own efforts. I've heard it said before, even by a pastor, that if you're going to bring your non-Christian friends to church, make sure you tell me so I can make sure to include the gospel in the message. What that says, we had a gospel leadership cohort and several years ago, I asked our cohort, I said, what is that saying? And I was so proud as uh, Mark McKay, he was saying, what that statement says is that the gospel <clears throat> is for the non-Christian, not for the Christian. But it's for the non-Christian, it's for the, the Christian, it's the very it is the very good news that grows us up into the faith and saves us from becoming self-righteous as well. So that's what Paul was reminding them of last week. Now this week, we pick up in verse 3, and we're going to read 3 through 11, where Paul is now stating that as, as, as we read the Apostles' Creed, as, as we sang the song, the story I tell, what we realize is that these are the truths that we've declared for the past 2,000 years. That these are the truths that we stand on. This is a, uh, the truth that our word is telling. What Paul has taken us to is, again, that right belief leads to right behavior. 
He's just not giving us doctrine and saying, Here, here's a bunch of heady doctrine. Memorize this. He's saying, when this actually gets beyond your head and into your heart, it transforms your life. I love what R.C. Sproul says. He says that the doctrine of justification, meaning that we're made legally right with God, might be one of the easiest doctrines for us to grasp with our minds, but the hardest one for us to get into our hearts and actually believe. And so with that, we're going to look at that today. So again, if you're joining us this morning online, welcome. It's great to have you guys joining us this morning. For those of you guys that are gathered here in person, it's really good to see your faces. And it's, even though they're covered by masks, it's just really good to not just preach to a camera. So love you guys, love seeing you guys. A, a couple quick celebrations I want to celebrate before we pray and read the word is that uh, Jason and Robin just had their baby this last week, and that's baby April uh, Rose has arrived safely. She, yeah, yeah, that's something to applaud, yeah. <clears throat> you can celebrate, and you don't have to get afraid that we're gonna get weird charismatic in there, right? You can clap every now and then. So, two, we have a few people that are currently pregnant, and so what we want to say, is, so with, ba with babies that have arrived, babies that are arriving, I know Skylar and Elizabeth Joan, I know uh, Jones, Ian and Meredith Wheeler, I know Jake and Sarah Clausen, all expecting babies. And so new birth and then babies on the way. And so we just want to celebrate them as their family and encourage them as a church to walk alongside of their children and raise them up in the Lord. And so we're thankful for that. With that, let's pray. Father, we recognize that apart from your grace, we are hopeless. Apart from the gospel, we can spend the rest of our lives trying to prove ourselves right before you. We will become exhausted, burnout, and restless with no peace. God, thank you for stepping in through your son, Jesus Christ, to bring us and do for us what we cannot do in and of ourselves. With so much turmoil going on in the world around us, we thank you that we have the greatest hope that we can base our lives on, that you've come, Jesus, that you've rescued, that you've restored, that your work is finished and that you're seated on the throne in charge. There is no small detail, no small circumstance or large that, 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 that goes unnoticed by you. God, you're good. That's the truth we declare. You're faithful. You don't change. And we can rest in these truths. Father, we would ask through your word this morning and through the gospel that you would minister, that you would speak, that you would heal, that you would convict through the power of your spirit. We, we, we love you. We need you. Speak to us. Speak through us. I, I confess and declare my need for you. We pray for your glory, Father. We pray by the spirit's power. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A few things as we dive in. The main point for this morning is the saints are saved from self-salvation. It's the main point. The saints are saved from self-salvation. Verse three, this is God's word. This is a, Apostle Paul. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely board, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. 
but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach. And so you believed. This is God's word. Four things I would say as we jump in to pay attention to throughout is we are going to be looking at that the saints are saved from self-salvation. In other words, the saints are saved from religion and from religiosity. And what I mean by that is religion is man's best attempt to solve our greatest problem, which is to be reconciled to God. So religion is man's greatest attempt to solve our biggest problem to be reconciled to God. You will know when you've fallen into religiosity or some sort of religiousness because these four things will oftentimes come out. You will be defensive. Defensiveness proves our religiousness. Why? Because when I'm defensive, I need to prove to you that I am righteous in and of myself. So I defend myself, right? Let me give you an example of this. Yesterday at our house, we were having a Nerf war. And by me, I mean me and my two younger daughters. And so we're having a Nerf war, and uh, they're <laughs> in this moment, I transitioned into like a, 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 a member of SEAL Team 6 of the Navy SEALs. And so uh, I get really into it, and I got a backup Nerf gun tucked in behind. I have Guns N' Roses, Welcome to the Jungle, playing in my pocket. Okay, so <laughs> I'm just inviting you in to give you a picture of what's going on. So get really into this. <clears throat> well... It normally leads with, or leads with, or ends with my daughter's crying. But what happened yesterday is Allie opens the front door and I'm like, boom, right between the eyes, <laughs> right in the forehead. So I started laughing. Immediately it was like red and she's like, you need to say you're sorry. And so that's, that's how she responded. I probably should have, right? I just shot her in the forehead <laughs> as she walked through the door. She wasn't ready for this. <clears throat> Do you know what I did? I was like, how, how is it that I shoot you in the forehead with a Nerf gun? And I laugh, but when I fly over the handlebars of my bike, that you get to laugh, right? Do you see what I did? It's, it's great, is I just turned it back on her. So I defended myself. Instead of just saying, I'm sorry, let me give you a hug. I, I defended myself so I can prove that I am righteous in and of myself, okay? So I should have said I'm sorry. In, in the same way, I could just apologize to my girls. My girls weren't blessed with an older brother. They just have a father who's 12. So in that... I can step forward toward them and do that unless I'm believing the lie of religion that I need to prove my own righteousness. Next is our comparison proves our religiousness. So when we start to compare ourselves with one another, right? And this happens often. Someone asked me the other day, do I eat healthy? And instantly I go toward uh, someone who doesn't eat healthy and someone who does eat healthy, right? And, and like I'm somewhere in the middle and that's often how we see ourselves. We're, we're, we're not a Hitler, Mayo, Paul Pot, anyone like that. And we're not Mother Teresa, we're probably somewhere in the middle. Comparison. It's typically driven by religiosity. Next, our lack of transparency, our lack of uh, ability to be raw, real, transparent. Though our Bibles, from beginning to end, have no problem showing man's failure, we, we can preach a message of grace, declare that it's the message we stand on, but yet hide ourselves and pretend like we don't need it. And last, our self-atonement is one way that we believe the lie of religiosity. And so those are the things, the four things that I would say, 
these things, pay attention to them because it's showing what you're actually believing, that your belief is that I need to respond this way, react this way, live this way, because I'm actually looking into myself to be the Savior, not looking out to Christ to be the Savior. And so with that, let's jump in. Verse 3, Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance. We have to notice this. When Scripture says, first importance. When God's word says, this is what's the most important thing, pay attention. He says, I delivered to you as a first importance. He's talking about what he said last week, the gospel, the good news of what Christ has accomplished, finished and done through and in himself. But then he's also saying this also, whatever is the most important thing, that's what should drive our discipleship. We talked about that last week. But the essence of our discipleship should be whatever Paul's getting ready to say. Why would I want to give someone in discipleship something other than what the Word of God says, this is the most important thing? And so if Paul's saying, the Word of God is saying, this is the most important thing, what, what I also received. So Paul's like, I received this, I'm giving it to you. What is that? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. That's what he says. That And this, what's coming up, this is the most important thing. What is the most important thing? You could say it's graduating college. You could say a lot of things, but this is what God's word says. This is what's most important, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Here's the reality. Oftentimes, well, say it this way. Everyone is, is, is religious in the sense that I've never met the person who doesn't sense that there's something wrong with them, that something's broken, that they're not perfect, and then they're trying to do something about it. Here's the question though. When you feel guilty, why? Where does your guilt come from? And then here's the thing, who's going to pay for it? Who's going to make the atonement for that guilt? And if it's you, how will you ever know that you've tipped the scale? And so what religion is constantly saying is that, is that you need to strive, you need to climb the mountain, you need to make sure that you're tipping the scale, that your good is outweighing your bad. This is a very common belief all across the board. But say, I've not met the person who's not religious in the sense that they think generally that the, the life they're doing, the actions they're doing, the works they're doing is somehow atoning for their wrong behavior, atoning for their guilt, and, and helping to tip the scale for them to live a better life. There's a show called The Good Place. And in The Good Place, in the very first episode, what we actually see is this belief. And and it's quite interesting. This is coming from Hollywood, but this is what a lot of people believe. And this is how people would uh, explain even Christianity. This is how people would explain how we tip the scale and how in the end of our life, we can trust that we will end up in a good place. So we're gonna watch this short clip. We're gonna watch it at home. And on the screen here, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's nothing inappropriate, but it's actually really fascinating to see. This is what people believe. So with that, we'll turn it over and just be patient with us because we're trying to make sure that we stay in tune to the uh, viewers at home as well. So, uh, Hello, everyone, and welcome to your first day in the afterlife. You are all, simply put, good people, but... How do we know that you are good? How are we sure? During your time on Earth, every one of your actions had a positive or a negative value, depending on how much good or bad that action put into the universe. Every sandwich you ate 
Every time you bought a magazine, every single thing you did had an effect that rippled out over time and ultimately created some amount of good or bad. You know how some people pull into the breakdown lane when there's traffic and they think to themselves, ah, who cares? No one's watching. We were watching. Surprise. <laughs> anyway, when your time on Earth has ended, we calculate the total value of your life using our perfectly accurate measuring system. Only the people with the very highest scores, the true cream of the crop, get to come here to the good place. What happens to everyone else, you ask? Don't worry about it. The point is, you are here because you lived one of the very best lives that could be lived. And you won't be alone. Your true soulmate is here too. That's right, soulmates are real. One of the other people in your neighborhood is your actual soulmate, and you will spend eternity together. So welcome to eternal happiness. Welcome to the good place. Sponsored by otters holding hands while they sleep. You know the way you feel when you see a picture of two otters holding hands? That's how you're gonna feel every day. We would understand this theology if you've been in the Christian faith, if you have an understanding of the gobble, uh, gospel, <laughs> it's completely bogus. The reality is, is that many think this to be true, and though many Christians would say that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, would then think something like this is true. But Paul says that Christ died for our sins. The thing that we don't like to talk about and the, the word that we don't like to mention in the church from the pulpit, it's not popular, is sins. Christ didn't come to give us a moral boost and set an example for us and said, here, I see you're pretty good. Let me give you a moral example and this will help you be a little better. Christ came to pay an atonement on our behalf that we could not pay. He paid our guilt. He paid our sins, he paid our trespasses, he paid our rebellion against God. And the reason why he did that is sin leads to death. And we will die a million deaths before we have our eternal death separated from God if it not been for Christ coming to be the sacrificial atonement to pay for our guilt that we need. And so Tim Keller says this, oftentimes we view hell as just like we're with our buddies, or it's this hot place, but Keller explains it like this. Hell is actually the place in which your selfishness, jealousy, self-centeredness, pride, egotistical, all of those things grow and magnify for all of eternity. And so it is the place where your sin doesn't stop. It actually continues to grow into this massive self-centered person for all of eternity. That sounds awful. And that's why Paul is like, this is the most important thing that Christ came and died for our sins and died to the death that we should have paid for our rebellious treason against God. And he's like, this is, this is actually what all the scriptures tell. And, and I would have loved to have been, been there on the Emmaus road. I won't read all of it, but in Luke 24, if you go there later and read, Jesus appears after his resurrection and he's talking to the disciples. And he's like, what's going on? And he's disguised. And they're like, are you the only one around here that doesn't know what just happened? And then he goes to open their eyes and show them that, that, that uh, he actually takes them to the Tanakh, which is the ordering of the Old Testament from a Jewish stance. Okay. That is the Torah. That is the Nevi'im, And that is the Ketuvim. And so he walks them through to see how the prophets 
how the Torah, how everything has actually all been about him and it's all pointed to him. Our Bibles are not a yearbook to where we turn and find something sweet written about us. Our Bibles are about Jesus. We get our lives into a mess because we already make everything about us. This book is not. It is about Christ. It's not good guys and bad guys. It is all bad guys, one hero, Jesus Christ. And so beginning to end, it's, it's lifting him up and elevating him. And that's what Jesus was trying to say. He also tells the scribes, the Pharisees, he's like, in John 5, 39, he says this, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures that bear witness about me. He's like, he's telling them they're lost. This is so offensive. These are the religious train of the day. And he's like, you don't understand. All of the scriptures are actually pointing to me. He goes on to say in, in John 5, 46, right after this, for if you would have believed Moses, you'd believe me because Moses wrote about me. So we, we understand that this is not just some manual book, that this is not a yearbook. It's actually a book that is telling the story from the beginning, leading up to Christ, that he was coming into the world to provide the rescue we cannot do, and our self-salvation attempts are vain. The saints are saved from self-salvation, because Christ came, as the scriptures say. Let me ask this. It's a good question for your GC guides this week, too. <clears throat> if Paul says this is the most important thing in the word of God, is, let me ask this. What is the most important thing to you right now? What is the most important thing to you in your life? Is it a better marriage? Is it kids that behave well? Is it, is it graduating college? Is it getting a six-figure business? Is it moving or progressing to something else in life? Or is the most important thing this, that your greatest problem is that you can't be reconciled to the God who created you, where you will have the most joy and peace and Christ ultimately came and he did that for you. Why? Because he died the death that our sins deserve, as the scriptures say. Verse 4. He goes on to say that he was buried. And that he raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Let me just warn you guys. I'm going to lull you into a sleep right now and hopefully wake you back up, okay? Because for some of you guys, this, this might be a little boring, but it's very important because, again, he's saying that the scriptures have always said that the resurrection was something that was going to take place. Now, Psalm 1610 says this. You guys can look these up later. Uh, th this is David talking, but he says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Holy One is never a title given to David. It's only a title given to the Messiah. And so David's saying, you'll not let your Holy One see corruption. Corruption means grave. That's one example. Maybe that's a little bit of a stretch for you. But also here, if you actually see the word that Paul uses here, then he appeared, that, that word appeared in the English is the Greek word hurao, which actually means, or it, 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 is, it is from death to life. The, the only time that we see Paul using that, or uh, let me rephrase, the other time that we see that word being used in, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, is referring to one day. And it's the third day of creation. When, when, when from uh, death on earth, God brings forth vegetation. And so, of course, Paul is being strategic here, but maybe that's a stretch for you. And so some of the more cut and clear passages are Hosea 6, 1 and 2, which says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. And my favorite 
because it's the one that Jesus used was Jonah 1.17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. In Matthew 38, 12, 38 through 41, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And he says, the only sign you're going to get is this, is that for just as Jonah was in, it was in the belly of the great fish three days and three nights, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented and the preaching of Jonah at the preaching of Jonah, behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So these are all signs saying that the scriptures have been telling this thing, that, that, that God is sending the Messiah into the world to pay the punishment for our sins, that he will go into the grave and that he will rise up on the third day. Now, if, if you're here and you're investigating Christianity, if you're online, you're investigating Christianity, I know that the concept of the resurrection as any miracle is a hard one to explain. And so here's what I would say that I'm not, I don't believe Paul is giving the evidence that he's going to give in verses five through 10 for the non-Christians. I actually know that he's writing to the church. And so the evidence he's going to be giving here is actually to increase those who call themselves saints to increase their faith in the resurrection. And, and part of it is, is that we see this other story in the Bible of, of a rich man who's unnamed and, and, and a poor man is a beggar named Lazarus. And they, they both die and uh, Lazarus goes into what seems to be like a heaven type place. And then the poor man goes to what seems to be like a hell type place. And, and the poor man is, is crying out. He's like, tell Lazarus to come and bring me something to wet my tongue. Tell Lazarus to do this. Tell Lazarus to do this. And, and, and then he goes, I'm uh, not doing that. And he's like, someone needs to go to my family and give them a sign. Do you know what Jesus says? If they're not going to believe the prophets, they're not going to believe a sign. In other words, that I, I think we could stack evidence after evidence after evidence after evidence for someone who's not a Christian and say, if I just saw this or saw this or saw this, but God's word make, makes it clear. In order for someone to see and behold the beauty of the gospel, that comes through the declaration of the gospel and through the empowerment of the spirit. And here's what I mean. In 1 Peter, he says that we need to be out 315, that we need to be able to give a defense for the hope that's in us. You have to remember, Peter's not writing to a, a, a bunch of well-trained theologians. He, he, he's not writing to the academic. In fact, he's writing to illiterate people who most of them can't even read. And he's like, you need to be able to give a defense for the hope that's in you. What is Peter saying is, go to the scriptures. That's what you do. And, and, and if non-Christians come to you and they're like, answer this, answer this, answer this. We can do, or, or I'll give an example. If, if some says, hey, I can't worship God because of all the evil in the world, a, a simple response is, do you think evil is wrong? They would say, of course. And you would say, so do I. And, and then I would then ask the question, what does your worldview say about evil? And what can you do about it? Because what I believe is this, is that through the greatest evil of all times, which is an innocent man dying for sinful people, God brought about the greatest beauty. And that's the picture of Jesus Christ. Through, through this great act of evil, God shows that he's in control of even the evil of the world and he can bring beauty through ashes. And so scripture, our word, it is what we should drive people to. We should take people to the gospel. And for those that call themselves saints, I believe that Paul is saying, hey, you can increase your confidence in the resurrection through what I'm going to tell you here, which is this. Look here, verse five. He appeared to Cephas. Why would Paul start there? He's like, hey, the resurrection happened. He appeared to Cephas. Because this, 
Think about who Peter is. Think about who Cephas is. Think about who the apostles are. These are not like men from 300. These are men that are locked behind a door whenever Jesus appears, right? They're hiding. They're locked behind the door. Peter is the one who, when a young girl came to him and was like, hey, aren't you with Jesus? He denied three times. And so you, you would have to see the craziness of, of, of what Peter's life ends up being to just be for a lie. In other words, did Peter get together with the rest of the uh, apostles and say, hey guys, bring it in. Let's huddle up. Check this out. I gotta, I, I've cooked up a really good plan. Jesus is dead. I say we go whoop the guards, roll the, the thousand pound stone away. Let's hide the body. And then let's cook up this massive lie that he rose again. And, and, and then the apostles would be like, cool. What's in it for us? Here, here's where it gets really good. So I'm going to be hung upside down. Most of you are going to be stoned, beaten, or even boiled alive, stabbed to death. Are you in? We, like the apostles have been like, that's crazy. People aren't going to live like that for a lie, right? And so to, to, to see people that go from cowards to, to, to courage, the only way that happens is through meeting the resurrected Christ. Next, he goes on to say he appeared to Cephas, but then he appeared to 500 people, most of whom are still alive. So Paul's like, hey, go talk to them. One of the arguments that's brought against them is that one, Jesus wasn't really dead. And so uh, that would be hard to believe uh, that Jesus was uh, resurrected. He had overcome death if he was walking around haggard. He had a spear in him and he was barely alive going, yes, that's what it looks like to overcome death, right? But the other thing is people say that this is just an hallucination. Hallucinations don't happen in mass hallucinations. That's why Paul's like, hey, 500 people, most of who are still alive, some have fallen asleep. Go talk to them. Next, he goes, he appeared to James. Maybe you're thinking it's just the 12. The 12 of us cooked this up. He's like, look at James. James was not connected to the 12. Who is James? James is Jesus' half-brother that thought he was crazy. How do you go from a crazy or from a younger brother who thinks your older brother is crazy to worshiping him as God, you meet with the resurrected king. That's the only way. So he's like, look, James has no buy-in in this. He's, he, he's, he thought we were crazy. Look at the last one. Verse, verse eight, last of all, as one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Why is this so significant? This one takes the cake, saints, and here's why. This is Saul of Tarsus. This is Saul of Tarsus. This is the man who spoke three or four languages. This is the man who was a brilliant scholar. This is the one who was being raised up by Gamaliel. This is the one who had everything going for him. A Pharisee of Pharisees. Very educated, very wealthy, had a great life set before him. I mean, everything going for him. What would make someone give up all of that to be shipwrecked, to be stoned, to be beaten multiple times and go through the, uh, uh, and at the end of your life, be beheaded. Only one thing, a meeting a resurrected Lord. Uh, imagine you have a gift, like you're very athletic or you, you, you can sing really well. Imagine then you're like Paul, which 2 Corinthians 10, 10 says he's not very much to look at physically. And so we know that about Paul. And so the one thing you can gain attention for and popularity from is, is by um, being athletic or having a really good voice. Would you ever give that up to lose all of your popularity? And in the same way, Paul gave up everything that gained him notoriety and, and, and 
popularity to live a life and be martyred, resurrected Jesus. Again, I don't think this is going to convince a non-Christian. I think as a non-Christian, if you're listening in, the thing you would have to first be convinced of is that you have a problem of sin inside of you. You recognize that you're not perfect. You recognize you can't do anything to overcome it, to fix it. So who's going to pay for it? You or Christ? But the saints are saved from this self-salvation. Why is the resurrection important? That's a good question for us to ask. Why is this important? Jason Patterson said in in a sermon uh, weeks ago, he said, the resurrection is the proof that God accepted Christ's payment on the cross is final and finished. The resurrection is is, is our evidence. If there's no resurrection, everything Jesus said is complete hogwash. It's just empty, vain words. But the words on the cross, it is finished. Everything that's done, everything that needed to be done was completely finished. It's proven true when a man walks out of the grave and never goes back to it. It is our proof. It is our confidence. I hate the sin that lives in me. I don't like it. I want it gone. The reality is, is that I can spend the rest of my life looking to my uh, just uh, uh, vain victory over sin, or what I can do is what Paul says. I can recognize in Romans 8 that through Christ, through what he's done, through his life, death, and resurrection, that I'm more than a conqueror, which means this. I don't look to my failure over sin. I look to Christ's complete victory over sin for me and go, that's my victory. Saints, that's our victory. Everyone longs for a resurrection. We long for something new. We, we long for new life. We, we long for our marriages to be restored. We long for things to be restored. You, you watch Hollywood videos, The Matrix, Beauty and the Beast, Tangled, all these shows. What is going on? There's a resurrection. Someone's going from death to life. The resurrection is this, is that when Jesus Christ walked out of that tomb and we put our faith and trust in him, that our life is swallowed up. I mean, swallowed up in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. When, when, when we go out hiking and it's cold, sorry, I'll step back into the camera's position here. When, when we go out hiking and it's cold, oftentimes what my daughters will do is they'll run up to me and they'll run up to me and, and, and I'll grab them. They'll say I'm cold. And so what I do is I unzip my jacket and I put either Brooks or Joey in and I zip my jacket up to the rest of, other than the bulge in my jacket, they're invisible, Right. And in that moment, they are hidden. They are held close. They are comforted. In the same way, when we put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ through his resurrection, our lives are hidden. Meaning that the very thing that you did last night, last week, all of your life is hidden in Christ. Just like Jonah's life was hidden in the belly of the fish, our lives are completely hidden in Christ before a holy God. That's our confidence. That brings peace. That brings comfort. And then it makes us realize this, that salvation is not a self-project, but the saints are saved from self-salvation. Because I don't need to look to me. I can look to someone else. I can look outward. I can look to Christ. And that's where I look for my hope. And this is what he is saying. This is what Paul's trying to say. And, and if we get this, this sound doctrine, this, these, these sound beliefs, it's going to change the way that we behave. Verse nine, he says this, for I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Why would Paul say this? This is not Paul trying to be Eeyore. This is not Paul ever trying to pull attention to himself. This is Paul setting up the conjunction that's coming in verse 10, which is this word, but. 
This is Paul saying, hey, I persecuted the church. That word perse uh, persecuted actually means hunted. I hunted down believers. I don't know about you guys. I've never murdered someone. Paul has signed off on murder. If you look at the people God uses in scripture, all you can say is grace. You can't go with David's story. You can't go with so many of these uh, people's story. Wow, awesome people. You would have to go the grace of God. And that's what Paul gets. He's like, there was nothing in and of me, but look at what he says here. Underline this in your Bible. Highlight this in your Bible, please. Because this is something you need to preach to yourself every day. This is the foundational truth that we stand on. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. But I'm going to read it again and, and, and think about that. The grace of God is a gift that is unmerited. You have not earned it. There's nothing in your life you can tether to it. And God goes, because of that, my love. He says, it's, it's nothing. You see, we are saved by works. Let me be careful. We're just not saved by our own works. We're saved by the works of Christ on our behalf. And so God doesn't look at our lives and go, oh, I'm really impressed. He looks at the life of Christ that we're hidden in and goes, that's what impresses me. Again, by the grace of God, that's it. Paul goes, I am what I am. That's all he clings to. That's all he can say. This is where Christianity is fundamentally different from any other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world has to, it leads to this. You're trying to fix your greatest problem. Mormonism does this too. Let me read. This is, this is straight from the Book of Mormon from 2 Nephi 25, 23. It says this. Please listen to this. For we labor diligently to write to persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. For we know that it is by grace we are saved after all we can do. Did you catch that? The only person that ever lived doing all they could do was Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul himself in Romans 7 goes, I don't want to do the things that I'm doing. I hate the things that I'm doing. I don't do the very things that I know I'm supposed to do. Only Jesus Christ says, we're not saved by grace after we do all we can do. God's word makes that clear. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, you, are, you have been saved by grace. This is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no man may boast. There is no caveat. There is no but. There is no after all you can do. It is grace alone. I like what Brennan Manning says. He says, our huffing and puffing to impress God, our scrambling for brownie points, our thrashing about trying to fix ourselves while hiding our pettiness and wallowing in guilt are nauseating to God and our flat denial of the gospel of grace. Grace shuts down pride, shuts down content, it shuts down big egos, and it replaces you. And here's the reality. We all hate that. We want to be at the center of the universe. We want to be able to, to, to hold to something, claim something, and say, look, I have this, I've done this. But grace removes that. Here's the thing. In, in such a divided society, here's the beauty, is Every Christian has the same equal stance with God, holy, set apart, blameless, flawless, perfect. Everyone got there by the same way. Everyone is kept there by the same way. That squashes pride, content, and egos. No one gets to say, look at what I've done and how serious I'm taking the pandemic. Look at what I've done over here and, and all the works that I'm doing. No one gets to, to say, look at all the things I've done. Grace squashes all of that. Because it says we all have the same title before a holy God and all of us have got there the same exact way and it's by God's grace alone. It shuts it down. We all get to say these two words. Oh, me too. I stand up here the same, same feeling every week that, that I'm a fraud, 
and I'm reminded by the same truth like Paul each week, that it's by the grace of God alone I am what I am. My life is not lived in complete faithfulness to what God commands of me as a husband or a father. I can't stand on that. I, I, I can point to the grace of God. But here is this thing that Paul says. His grace for me, look in verse 10, was not in vain. On the contrary, Paul says, I worked harder than any of them. Look, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not trying to get attention with that, but I worked harder than any of them. He goes on to say, though it wasn't I, but the grace of God that was in me. What is Paul saying? That grace is in vain if it doesn't lead towards work. Grace is in vain. This is what James is saying is you're not saved by your grace, but if the grace of God doesn't compel you to love and serve and live a holy life, do you actually understand grace? If you're constantly as a Christian living in the stands and you're never on the field, have you actually grasped grace? If I said, hey, we need help with the church, I'll pay you $5,000 a week to show up. My guess is everyone would be here early but if I said, hey, we need help with the church, can God's grace compel you? You'd probably say, eh, it's because honestly, do we have a small view of the grace that God has extended to us that we don't deserve? Grace doesn't lead to apathy. It doesn't lead to laziness. Whatever we do in life, we should strive to do it with all of our might, with all of our zeal, because we understand that what we've been given by God is not something we deserve. When you step in the pulpit, when you lead worship, when you work in your workplace, whatever you do, it should be done with hard work. That's what Paul is saying, that actual grace leads to you working harder than anyone else. Can that be true of you? Or is it true of you that your priorities are mixed up so where actually you spend the majority of your hard work is in your career, is in your own self-pursuits, is in everything else, or is it that your hard work is for the kingdom of God? That's what Paul is saying, by the grace of God, I am what I am, but his grace for me was not in vain. You know, the reality too is this, is that there's people, and, and, and I want to be gracious but truthful here, is that there's people at online at home watching the service. And some of you, I, I get it. Man, you're at risk and danger. We fully support that. But sometimes we do that out of sheer convenience. And the only reason you get to watch it is because there's people here working hard to make that happen. Oftentimes the way that I can minister to people is because there's people doing hard work to make that happen. In reality, if, if we lived... If the apostles chose to live like we often live, would we even be here today? Because oftentimes we're so self-seeking saying, I'm not getting this and I'm not going. I've heard people say, I'm not going to church because you have to wear a mask. That is immature, selfish. Grace is not in vain whenever it builds us up, it leads us up and it grows us into love and, war and, and, and service to one another. I love what Paul says in Romans 12, 10. He says, outdo one another. You want to be competitive? Outdo one another in showing love and in showing honor. That's what grace leads to. And here's the reality. The, the, the comeback is my life's a mess. So is mine. And so is everyone. So is everyone in the Bible. And if you're waiting till, uh, and, until your life gets in order, then are you putting your trust again in your own self-salvation project? Because the saints are saved from self-salvation. So let me go back to the four things we said at the beginning. Defensiveness proves our religiosity. Are you being defensive right now? Our comparison proves our religiousness. Yeah, I don't do that, but I do better than this person. Our lack of transparency. I, I can't say that. Paul can say that he was the least of the apostles, the chief of sinners, because he understood grace. 
And are you someone who pays for your own sins through your own guilt, through your own walling, or do you rest and trust in the atonement that Christ has paid for you? Because if you do, you will run a lot longer because you run a race that's already been run perfectly for you. You will also be a better student because you realize Christ is giving you an A plus 100%. You can't change your grade. Like a musician who plays every instrument perfectly, never misses a chord. That's what Christ's life was to you. He gives that. And so God, as Zephaniah 3.17 says, he sings delight over you. You will not burn out if you rest in grace. Our problems in our marriages, our problems in society is oftentimes because we shift from a culture of grace and a theology of grace into comparing, I've done this, you haven't done this, I deserve this. Please come back to grace. Please stand with what Paul says. It's only by the grace of God that I am what I am. He says this in 11 as we wrap up. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. What's Paul saying? Look, I don't know if it was Cephas. I don't know if it was Apollos. I don't know who it was because remember they, they were uh, arguing about this at the beginning of the letter. Whoever it was that preached to you, they preached this. The same message that Christians have been standing on for 2,000 years. I don't know who it was, but this is what they preach, and then this is what you believed. And since you believe, this is how you behave. Because the saints are saved from self-salvation. Let's pray. Father, we recognize these truths are truths that have the ability to change our lives. These aren't just truths we declare because they're fun, trite sayings. This is your word. This is the gospel. This is your grace. And it has the power to transform us, transform us this morning. We thank you the gospel takes us right where we are. But God, you love us too much to leave us there. And so we thank you that the gospel has the power to save, but also to transform us. Please let your grace to us not be in vain, God. In Jesus' name, amen. The worship team is going to close us out in a couple songs as we move into a time of communion. Communion is this weekly reminder, and I love that we get to take it together as the saints. But it's this weekly reminder, it's this remembrance of exactly what Paul is saying here. This is what we stand on. This is our truth. This is the good news. That when we go to the table, we recognize collectively together, we go to this table holding fast to the same truths that unites us. It's this work of Christ. We, we are declaring that. We're declaring it with, with one another. This is what we stand on unites us. If that's not true for you, please don't take communion. It's not that we want to be exclusive. It's that you're declaring something you don't yet believe, but please keep coming back. And here's the truth. You're going to keep hearing the same message week after week because we believe that it is the gospel that saves us and transforms us. Also, there's giving baskets on the end of the table there. We don't believe you give to get favor with God. We believe that Christ has given everything and we give out of that. Also, as I stated at the end, one of the ways that we can give, one of the ways that God's grace can move us is towards serving and meeting the needs that we have in our church family. So if that's you and you're wanting to do that, please reach out. Please let it be known. Please connect to the Connect team. I'm telling you, we could use your help. I love you, appreciate you guys, and when you're ready, please make your way to the table.